Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. Another unpredictable week stretches ahead, helping us navigate the choppy waters. I have Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Hello, good morning, and a glorious sunny morning it is, at least where I am. <laughs> it really is here too. Gavin, what is the latest from the Ukraine front? I mean, you know, there's no getting away that it's the dominating news story at the moment and will remain so for several weeks, I think. Yes, I mean, it does suck the oxygen out of virtually everything else, although there are a lot of other things going on too. But I suppose we are, we're into two or three different things. One is the journalism of the last atrocity, unfortunately, another humanitarian crisis, another bombing of civilians, essentially, the attack on a, a base right up near the Polish border, and the plight of all those people who have managed to leave Ukraine and still have to be settled or, or resettled. And that is a real problem. And I've been talking to a friend of mine in Poland who's been telling me how difficult things are and saying aid is, of course, needed, but it's things that include flak jackets. He was saying that paramedics, doctors, nurses and people in ambulances have been shot at deliberately and are being killed because they're going to rescue people who have been already attacked. And he suggests that flak jackets for paramedics is now necessary in, in Ukraine, which is something I'd never thought of, and I'm frankly appalled by. And this morning, the awful news emerged that the pregnant woman who was pictured last week being stretched out of that maternity ward that was shelled, she had to have a cesarean section and tragically both mother and baby did not make it. She had become symbolic of all that is going on in Ukraine and I suspect her death and the death of the child will become front page news in the days to come. It will because uh, just to say uh, that's you know it's very difficult to understand hundreds of thousands of people in terrible situations but we do understand that one story and that's how yeah. we communicate with each other. That's exactly right. As you mentioned, action is now getting uncomfortably close to NATO borders, not only with the attacks around Lviv and especially the military base of Yaroviv, which is only, I understand, 15 miles from the closest Polish border, but also there are attacks going on around the Ivano-Frankivsk, which is less than 100 miles from the Romanian border and 150 miles from the Hungarian border. That is also very, very close. Meanwhile, several outlets, including CNN and the New York Times, reported last night that Russia has requested military assistance from China. And there are concerns that China might not be pulled into the conflict and it might become a proxy war. Do you think further involvement by the West is now inevitable. I mean, with so many fronts, I think the potential for a mistake, you know, exclude everything deliberate. I think the potential for a mistake that sparks something more is now enormous, surely. It is. And remember, you know, when, when you and I were at school and we learned the history of World War I, there was a moment when you went, wait a minute, this started with somebody being shot in a place yeah. most of us never heard of as a, a child, Sarajevo. And then suddenly all these other players jumped in and then we were at the most horrendous war for four years. So you're absolutely right. I think on, on China, I suppose my hope is that Xi Jinping wants to go down as a great Chinese leader in history, which means there has to be some history for him to go down in. And jumping on the side of Putin now, let us hope he feels that's a mistake. And as for the other matters, I mean, I, I, 
I try not to see anything particularly from the Russian point of view. But if you've got foreigners coming in to fight in a war zone, they are presumably a legitimate target, even if they happen to be quite near the borders of other countries. Mm-hmm. But, you're, you know, I hate to put it that way, but but I can, I can actually see the military imperative from their point of view or try, trying to see it. That does not mean to say, however, one stray missile landing in Poland and who knows where we would be. It seems to me that Putin has lost the international information battle, as it were, to Zelensky comprehensively and that any pretense of liberation is gone within the Ukraine. The Russian public or some of the Russian public might still believe it, but I can't see how anyone in the Ukrainian public could. Can he win from this point on? Or are we just looking at different flavors of losing that he can spin? And should the West be doing more, be working harder to provide him with a face saving, you know, to build him what Sun Tzu called the golden bridge via which he can retreat? I think that is really the key question, the most interesting question, but obviously it's, it's very difficult to answer. I mean, I, I, I think like many people, when, when I heard that there was 100,000, 150,000, 190,000 then Russian ch- troops in various positions around Ukraine, I assumed this was just elaborate blackmail and that he would settle for, you know, recognition that Crimea is indeed Russian from from the Ukrainian um, to concede that and something in the Donbass. I think we were all surprised that he pushed on. Now, what can he possibly salvage from it? It's interesting, at least we're asking that question now. We're not asking, you know, this supposed victory. I don't see how Mm. there could be any flavour of victory. In fact, a number of of, of friends of mine who are historians were pointing out that we should all read about what happened in Finland in November 1939. So after the Soviet Union gobbled up in cahoots with Hitler... Poland, Stalin then invaded Finland, a much smaller country than Ukraine. And basically, they failed. And Stalin had to pull out. You know, history never quite repeats itself. But Putin must be asking, what does success look like now? And I, I, to be honest, I can't really think of a definition of it from his point of view. Because he's, he's now in a position where even if he takes all of Ukraine, it is impossible to hold without him committing significant numbers, tens of thousands of troops to staying there for the foreseeable future. Meanwhile, the UK's reaction has been shaping up in a, in a well, a better way. The plan for refugees is slowly being dragged to a more acceptable position. Is it enough, do you think, or will the British government have to go further? Well, I think I think Michael Gove and the idea of three hundred and fifty pounds a month to people who are taking in a refugee or refugees' families. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good idea. I don't know if the figures are uh, the money's enough, but there are plenty of generous-hearted British people who are prepared to do that if they've got if they've got a, a space to do so. And Gove is one of the few people in the in the cabinet, whatever you think of him, he, he, he works very hard and he tries to solve problems. The rest of them don't really, or many of them don't really seem to, <laughs> to be anything other than somewhat inert. So compared to what is happening in Poland and Romania and uh, Moldova, which is a, a fairly poor country in Eastern Europe of which we, we hear very little, in yeah. terms of looking at, I think it's about 10% of the Moldovan population now as refugees from Ukraine. We are doing very little. The only excuses for that I can think of is we're somewhat distant 
but that is an excuse. You know, I think we, we, we clearly could do more in resettlement. And it's partly that this government is utterly hamstrung by their horrendous rhetoric about people trying to get in here and the people crossing from France to Dover and so on. So uh, they're, 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 they are hamstrung by their own rhetoric. And it's not it's not making Britain look like the kind of generous country that I think we most of us would like to live in. Yes, I, I think one of the one of the points that I wrote about over the weekend was that even if you want to, switching an entire machinery philosophically dedicated to keeping people out and shifting that to letting people in is a really, really hard task. And I think the focus should be on why the philosophy was initially keeping people out. And I think a, a, a wider conversation is to be had after this particular crisis is over. Are we also storing up future trouble? It seems to me that, that sort of setting a six-month limit for everyone instead of a range, if this carries on, which is possible, this war could be a long war now, we could be looking at another Syrian conflict, effectively. In six months' time, you're creating another cliff edge down the line. Is that is that wise? Well, it's not wise, but this is this is a government led by someone who, I mean, it seems that the overarching story from a British perspective is essentially why Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister of our country, given all kinds of things. That he <laughs> Something that Emmanuel Macron seems to wonder as well. <laughs> so we have someone wedded to various degrees of stupidity, it seems to me. And we are also, you know, I, I was thinking, I was thinking, as I stood in the shower this morning, if I were the head of MI6, would I trust Boris Johnson with anything that I'd found out or my people had found out? Would you trust, you know, if his own... It, it, various wives and girlfriends can't trust him. And given his interesting, shall we say, relationship with various people, would you trust him with information during what could become a world war? And I don't know what the answer to that dilemma is, because as head of MI6, you report to him. So maybe maybe we should get MI6 on the programme. If there's anybody from the Secret Intelligence Service listening, they'd like to give us a ring, we'd be happy to hear from them. Yeah, and, and UK sanctions and individuals are also moving in the right direction, albeit slowly. Now, Roman Abramovich is obviously a big ticket item. Do you think it is the sort of high-profile name that allows the government to give the impression it's doing a lot while actually doing the bare minimum? I think the short answer to that is yes. But I also think there's something even bigger behind this, which is, isn't it interesting that we now know the names of various Russian oligarchs, you know, Deripaska and Abramovich and others. But in terms of today's cultural figures in Russia, we're, we're, we're stuck. I mean, who are the Solzhenitsyns or the great ballet dancers or, mm. or the great composers of today from Russia? Because the Putin money-making kleptocracy has covered it all up. And so what we know, Russia is a country of incredible cultural riches, and it is really just now a sort of money-making machine for certain people. And therefore, in that sense, the fact it's Chelsea Football Club, which of course everybody has heard of around the world, and Abramovich, that he becomes the kind of poster boy for doing something. But is it enough? And I think it, well, for a start, it took a very, very long time to do anything. And mm. Is it enough? I doubt it. And as part of, I think, that wider conversation that we will have to have after the immediate crisis is over, 
is our relationship to autocratic regimes and, you know, what works and what doesn't. Sajid Javid was doing the news round this morning and, and I was struck that he was challenged about Saudi Arabia's record. 81 people were executed in Saudi Arabia in the last weekend alone. And it seemed to me that Sajid Javid was making precisely the sort of excuses, well, look, we can't cut our relationship with Saudi Arabian oil at the same moment and it will affect consumer prices. And it's better to be talking to this person than not talking to this person. It's better to be doing business with them than not doing business with them because that way we can express our concerns. And it seems to me those are precisely the same things that Germany was saying over Russian gas for the last you know, few years that Britain was criticizing Germany for, right? Yes, well, you you definitely got a point. And and why were eighty one people executed when the whole world is focused on another news story? I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it, that it was yeah. a, a good day from the Saudi perspective yeah. to to hide this news or have it buried reasonably buried. Uh, the second thing about it is. If there's 81 people in your jails that you feel for some reason that you have to execute, you really do have problems in your country. And we in Britain have to think very clearly about what our relations should be in the future. To be fair to Sajid Javid, the immediate crisis is so great that perhaps now is not the time. Britain has not got many friends around the world. The idea of global Britain, when we have irritated everyone from Ireland to, to the Biden administration and others, not as well as Russia and China, now is not a good time to make enemies. We need to make friends. So I think I can see the point. But the bigger point which you are making is that you can't divorce ethics in the end from economics and yeah, foreign policy that's it exactly the end of the same that you have to do you know you have to stay have an ethical core to your country with boris johnson i suspect that's a big ask frankly meanwhile gavin the war in ukraine means several other quite important stories are going pretty much under the radar the first and most disturbing of these i think is the return of covid cases are beginning to rise again there is a huge spike, for instance, in Hong Kong that has caused the Chinese ruling party to lock down the entire city of Shenzhen, a city of 17 and a half million people. And hospital admissions are rising here in the UK as well. Do you think we're in for another wave, basically? Well, I, I, supp- I suppose, you know, obviously neither of us are virologists, but it appears clear that there is an uptick. And also, you know, just because we're all worried about the Russians in World War III doesn't mean COVID isn't going to get us. And and I just know this is simply anecdotally. I know a number of people who have tested positive recently and who'd managed to escape the past two years. Hmm. So, and I, I, again, I, I travel in the London Tube and elsewhere. People still quite often wear masks in the Tube, it seems to me anyway. But on other things, in the supermarkets and so on, much, much less. So we have become a bit complacent. And I think that could be a mistake because we're looking at something else about Russia rather than our own health. And also the government's attitude to it is to pretend it's all over, rather like getting Brexit done. Brexit's another thing that's not done. We've got COVID done and it seems COVID is not done with us. What about the cost of living crisis? National insurance contributions go up in three weeks from today on, on the 6th of April. 
And the new energy cap, 54% higher than the current one, comes into effect even sooner than that, on the 1st of April, full year. The effect of the, the Ukraine war on fuel prices will make all of that worse. But does it also provide some something external to blame, which we know this government loves? Or do excuses not actually matter when people's pocket is affected? Well, you're, you're right on that. To, to take that sort of in reverse order, I think uh, the excuses are already being prepared. It's all the Russians' fault that uh, all these things are, are happening. It's all the Russians' fault that national insurance is going up. Obviously, it isn't. It is the fault of the war of, that we are seeing the increases, or largely increases in, in fuel prices, which we've all noticed. If you're a driver, it's quite astonishing to see how quickly they've gone up. If, if, you, if you don't fill your tank one day, you suddenly find it's, it's 8 or 10p more expensive the next day per litre. This will become, I think, a really serious story in coming months, and particularly next winter. The cost of living is going up, but it's also going up, in some cases, almost exponentially on the sort of things that those who are less well-off eat, for example, pasta and bread. And it's not just here. I was looking at bread as a hugely sensitive issue in places like Tunisia and Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Egyptian government is now thinking, can we continue to subsidise the, the, the price of bread? Because normally that has been one way of, of effectively making sure that people have food in their bellies and therefore there aren't riots in the streets. Well, the price of flour was the, the uh, catalyst for Arab Spring, essentially, which not many people know, but it was a price of bread in Egypt that caused those initial protests in Cairo. Yep, absolutely. And obviously, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, and Ukraine and Russia between them uh, produce a huge amount of the world's wheat. So if you if, if, if Ukraine is blocked off for various reasons or, or farmers simply can't plant and Russia, where there's a trade embargo, it is going to be very, very difficult for us. But it's also going to be difficult for other countries around the world and particularly the poorest among us. Meanwhile, Brexit disruption is also continuing. Food manufacturers and retailers are are warning that the new input rules coming in this summer will lead to shortages and price hikes, more bad news with regard to cost of living. Protocol negotiations are still ongoing, and it is my sense that rhetoric has softened since Frost's departure. The Northern Ireland Assembly elections are only seven weeks away, Might we expect a settlement, do you think? It seems to me very difficult to imagine a world of power sharing while the protocol issue is still rumbling on. Yes, there's so many strands to this. I mean, Boris Johnson met Michal Martin, the Irish Prime Minister Taoiseach, at the the rugby at Twickenham, which Ireland won fairly convincingly if you watched it. Who knows what, what went on? Certainly, Irish politicians do not trust Boris Johnson generally. But there has been a change in mood. The Democratic Unionist Party, which has been the biggest party in Northern Ireland, was in favour of Brexit, but has voted against every possible Brexit, including a no-deal Brexit. So they are in a completely disastrous situation. And I suspect what went on in that conversation between Martin and Johnson, at least from Martin's point of view, is 
Do you realise, Prime Minister, that Sinn Féin could become the biggest party in Northern Ireland and the biggest party in the Republic of Ireland at the same time? Would you like that to happen? And if you (laughs) wouldn't like that to happen, perhaps you should get off your backside and do something about the protocol. It's difficult. I mean, I I, I spent quite a lot of time in Belfast and, and I talked to a lot of loyalists, former loyalists, paramilitaries and so on. And I keep saying to them, you realize that you've got it actually rather good. If Scotland had what you've got to be able to trade freely within the European Union, it would be a great benefit to Scottish businesses. And they respond, but we don't like being treated differently to England, Scotland and Wales. And that is a gut issue for them. And Johnson has not been able to sort it out because he never thought about it when he, in 2019, effectively moved the border to the Irish Sea. So that that's going to cause problems. And the trade disruption is going to get worse because there's going to be more border checks, more bureaucracy as a result of Brexit. So I've said this so many times. <laughs> and it's, it's worth repeating, I'm afraid, because it all does flow from that initial deception and it was a deception this promise to northern ireland politicians and people that there won't be any kind of border between great britain and northern ireland it was a lie it was was. a blatant lie and people still believed it because they were desperate to believe it And now they find themselves not only in a tricky situation because of Brexit, but in a tricky situation emotionally because they feel betrayed. One thing on that, Alex, it wasn't covered in the British papers, but Ian Paisley Jr., the MP for North Antrim, said in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago, with a real sense of betrayal, that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is not leading a Conservative Party, which is a unionist party, but it is an English nationalist party. And he said it in sorrow rather than anger. And of course, because nobody listens to Northern Ireland MPs at the Commons, there was almost nobody there to hear it. But it is interesting that we are now being told by the biggest voice of unionism in Northern Ireland, Ian Paisley's son with his same name, somebody who's a sort of iconic figure in unionism, that he thinks that the government of the United Kingdom is an English nationalist government, not a unionist government. That's Mm. a big change. And I don't know where that will go, but it's very interesting. Now, finally, a few things around corruption, I guess, under that broad heading. (laughs) Just a few. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, on Partygate, police decisions on whether any number 10 staff will be fined are still outstanding. Is the potential for the scandal to kick off again, just as the news cycle is looking for something other than Ukraine, and just before the local elections in May. Yes, and also I think if you are even in Boris Johnson's cabinet, which is not full of stellar figures, if you are sitting there with him day after day during a war and you are a patriotic British person, does it sometimes occur to you that perhaps having a leader that few people trust who constantly lies is the best possible way to go forward. And so Johnson's position remains precarious because if any one of the big fish in the cabinet were to resign over a matter of principle and say, I just don't trust this prime minister, I don't trust him with the nation's secrets, I don't trust him over Partygate or whatever it is, if any one of the half a dozen of the biggest fish in the cabinet were to quit. Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, I don't think Priti Patel or Nadine Doris are going anywhere, but or Liz Truss for that matter. But if somebody did decide to go, Rishi Sunak. Well, Priti Patel, I think, is an interesting one because, you know, maybe she doesn't want to resign, 
but there are noises that she might be pushed. There is briefing and counter-briefing going on, which is never a good sign, never a sign of a healthy cabinet, that Johnson is increasingly frustrated with how wrong she's got the procedural stuff about visas. And there's counter-briefing from the Home Office last weekend that Pritch Patel wanted to go further to helping refugees, but it was Boris Johnson that stopped her, that put his foot down and said no. So I don't think Patel's position is as safe as, as all that. What about the Russian links to the Tory party? Could that become the thing that brings together the sort of twin strands of corruption in politics on the one hand and the Ukraine war on the other? What do you make, for instance, of the persisting rumours around Lebedev's peerage, on which there's been a lot of column inches this weekend? Yes, there has. I mean, there's a number of things there. Andrew Adonis, Lord Adonis, has said that Lebedev should not be a member of the House of Lords. He's in some way unfit. I don't know why in particular he's making that point now. But it seems to me, if he, if he is unfit to be in the House of Lords, then the Prime Minister is unfit to be in the, in the Commons for a number, number of reasons. We've also seen quite extraordinary, actually, thing from the former editor of the Financial Times, Lionel Barber, was tweeting that because a Russian news agency had spent, it is believed to be, millions of pounds in paying money to the Daily Telegraph, which produced these sort of news sheets that nobody ever read of effectively, as Mr. Barber would suggest, pro-Russian propaganda, while the paper was also paying and increasing the salary of one Boris Johnson. This is a very, very odd situation, which, you know, I'm trying to, trying to be fairly careful here not to, not to join too many dots, but, uh, but, but this is very, very odd. And so the thing rather smells. And could this bring down Boris Johnson? Well, I'd, I'd return to the, the point that if we are on seeing a huge war in Europe that possibly could spread, would you trust this prime minister to lead the country given the shadows over him, and in particular, his relationship with Mr. Lebedev and others? And I don't blame Lebedev for that. You know, he, he, was, he, he and his family came to Britain and were undoubtedly welcome. But I do think it raises huge questions about Boris Johnson's judgment. Yes, I, I think that's I think that's a really useful thing you just said, actually, Gavin. We need to separate the issue of whether Lebedev is is or is not guilty of something, which personally I think is quite precipitous. I you know, I think the, the, it's obvious that other media organizations will have an agenda. It is obvious that, you know, he has a, 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 a sort of a last name in a family history that opens him up to possible criticism. And I don't think it matters, actually. I don't think the question is whether Lebedev is in fact problematic. I think the question is whether Johnson was advised he was and ignored the advice. This is not about Lebedev's guilt or innocence of anything, but about the, the, the PM's propensity to close his ears to anything he doesn't want to hear, which he does again and again and again on all sorts of issues, including COVID, including everything. And that, in my view, is a much bigger security risk than any Russian oligarch. I, I agree. Yes, absolutely. I don't think this is about Mr. Lebedev. It is about the judgment or lack of it of a prime minister. And I have to say, I have talked with civil servants who have worked with Johnson, and I have talked with very senior journalists who have worked with Johnson, and they all 
unanimously do not trust him. Anything else we should be looking out for, Gavin? <laughs> as if we haven't as if we haven't covered enough i mean not to be pessimistic but apparently the queen's diary is still under review because her health is still quite fragile so well uh, yeah the, i mean the, is whether whether any of our listeners are royalists or or republicans or not that bothered i think is very i have almost never met anyone who is critical of the queen she is quite an extraordinary figure and as the as our elizabethan age eventually uh, draws to a close i think we will miss her and we will miss the fact that this remarkable woman spanned everything from world war ii through the loss of empire the the the, the creation of the commonwealth to the modern britain of the 21st century and that is quite stunning really so i hope she is with us for quite a while to come but obviously you know if she needs some time off i think she should have a bit of time she off. has earned it let's put face it put your feet <laughs> up and that's the end of this edition of start your week gavin esler thank you for joining us thank you alex if you found this podcast useful then you can help support us on the funding platform patreon for just two pounds a month just search patreon bunker podcast every donation keeps us going and we really appreciate your help thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow the bunker daily was presented by alexandre with gavin eslo the producers were jacob archbold and yelena sofonievich the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>